Good day, everyone, and welcome to the Lighthouse Beacon podcast. My name is Rami Shami, and I am the Multicultural Outreach Coordinator for Lighthouse for Grieving Children. A little background on our organization. We are located in Oakville, Ontario, but we provide services to the greater Toronto area. We offer facilitated peer support groups to help children, teens, and their families following a death in their family. Our groups are ongoing and open-ended, which offer each family member an opportunity to participate in their own way. And we launched these podcasts to bring a greater awareness, not only to children's grief support, but especially to the diversity within children's grief. Today, our special guest, Amanda Maragos, has been kind enough to join us to share her wisdom, experience, and knowledge, especially as it relates to children's grief. A little background on Amanda. She's a director of client services and volunteer programs for Philip Aziz Center for Hospice Care and Emily's House Children's Hospice in downtown Toronto. She's an experienced professional specializing in hospice palliative care client and patient programming and supports in addition to volunteer management for almost 15 years. Her skills in program development, communication, and leadership are currently being applied in both a community-based hospice and the 10-bed pediatric hospice residence that also employs a volunteer team of over 350 people. Advocacy for volunteerism and inclusive healthcare for all is a practice that is close to Amanda's heart and one of her passions. Welcome, Amanda. Hello. Hi. Thank you so much for having me today. It's, uh, it's an honor to spend time, spend time with you and to uh, be able to share. Oh, it's a privilege having you, uh, having you with us today, Amanda. Just to begin, can you tell us what is a pediatric hospice residence? Yeah, so we provide hospice palliative care support to children who are living with life-limiting illness and uh, have complex care. Uh, So our program, we have multiple programs uh, at Emily's House and within our uh, community program that supports children as well. Uh, We've got respite services, transitional care program, pain and symptom management program, and of course, uh, we provide uh, end-of-life care. So uh, we support children and families who are living with complex care and life-limiting illness. So being situated in Toronto and the breadth and capacity of programming that you're particularly involved with, the topic of diversity must be not must not be a stranger to you. You must be well-versed in terms of all the measures of diversity. Can you expand maybe on what it means in terms of what you're involved with, the Philip Aziz Center and Emily's House? Oh, yeah, for sure. So, you know, when we think of hospice palliative care, of course, we think about whole person care. And that's that, that's the part of us, the different parts of us that make us who we are. And it includes so many things, you know, where we're born, culture, it's ethnicity, it's the different traditions of families. So we have to factor all of those things as care providers uh, when we're taking care of our clients. So who they are, what their needs are, and meeting them where they are, you know, very client-centered care. So we've got so much to consider when we're delivering whole person care because what we're doing is we're dealing with multi-dimensional people. So it's absolutely, um, it's, it's relevant in the type of uh, services and care that we provide to families. When I hear pediatric hospice or children's pediatric hospice, that means in my mind as I understand it, that children are coming there to live with a life-limiting illness and potentially die of a life-limiting illness. Is that correct? That's correct. So there's an aspect of grief there for families, for siblings, for however families are defined. 
and mm-hmm. the supports for those families and those children, even in the in an aspect as I understand it, is anticipatory loss or anticipatory grief. Can you speak oh, a little bit more to the that aspect of the grief or grief support or what you witness and bear witness to in terms of grieving? Yeah, uh, uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, we see uh, definitely, yeah, I'm glad that you mentioned anticipatory grief. So we see families who come to Emily's house. And if we just like, if we focus on the families who come for end of life care for their child, you know, what they're looking for is a home-like environment to offer their children comfort and care. And they've already made the decision that this is what the focus is going to be on. We're no longer focusing on curative measures. We're going to be focusing on care and comfort. So they are already going through the process of anticipatory grief before they've even come through the door, actually. So once once they arrive, what we do is we focus on supporting the child, their siblings, the parents within the scope of anticipatory grief and offering them various kinds of legacy support, meeting them where they are. So there's no rush to this, you know, when they're ready to talk about these things, when they want to start doing legacy activities, arts, crafts, music, things, activities that are going to ultimately offer them a memorial piece of some kind that they can hang on to for their child. And in fact, we've, I've noticed too that just the experience of being in a hospice itself is part of a <laughs> memorial experience. We see that when our families come back uh, annually to a garden memorial service, you know, the way that they talk about their experience of being in a hospice. So something comes to mind, just to clarify what you mean by legacy. What is legacy? So legacy is about a few things. One of the things that legacy in terms of grief support especially is what can these parents do and what can they have to hold on to their child once their child has died? It's also it's the community. It's the it's the memory of a community also that has come around them. So in creating these things that we call hugs and in creating hand molds, there's the memory of the service provider who has helped do it, and then there's the piece that they have that represents them and their child in a moment. So legacy is about the moment, and it is about remembering their child through that piece, through Sometimes it's an inanimate object, sometimes it's a song, really creating a memory that the families can go back to um, where they can feel their child again. You know, parents are experiencing grief, you know, and grief is that natural response to loss. So, you know, in terms of legacy activities and legacy work, you know, we see that parents, they want something tangible to hold on to or to listen to something they can physically carry, something that they can touch, um, something that they can keep that represents their child. So it's almost like they're, you know, how do I feel my child every day? You know, what can I look at? What can I see? What can I, uh, you know, listen to? What can I touch about my child again? Like it's, it's it's that question of how do I feel my child after they physically aren't here? Thank you, Amanda. Why is that important? What does that do to the state of bereavement or to grieving? Well, I think for our families, you know, they want to remember their child. They want to hang on to their child. You know, yes, their child has died, but 
what they want to do is make sure that that child, the, the child's always going to be a part of their life, even after death. But it's like, it's how is that child a part of my life still? What can I do to still feel and remember my child? Thank you, Madonna. Who facilitates such interactions or such programming? Mm-hmm. So we work within a multidisciplinary team model. So we've got an allied health team that uh, helps us with doing legacy projects and activities. We've got a music therapist. We have a coordinator of recreation therapeutic programs. We have a social worker, spiritual care practitioner who supports our grief and bereavement programs. And of course, we also have a clinical team. So there are nurses and PSWs who have also been involved with the legacy work as well from time to time. Quite an encompassing scope of service and offers of support. Now, I can only imagine as, um, as the diversity of Toronto and all the mm-hmm. diversity we have and all the measures and domains of diversity we have in Toronto, how is that navigated with in terms of the scope of service you're able to provide? Yeah, so right away, we take a person-centered approach. So every family is treated individually. There's no, there's no blanket statements that go over the whole family. You know, as soon as they've come to us, it is this family. And we're looking at them, each person within the family, the child, the sibling, the parents, um, or, the, or the caregivers that, that are with the child. Everybody is treated individual, and there are really close, conversations that happen with those members of the family through our multidisciplinary team. So we spend time with them is the short answer. We make sure that we're spending time to really do our best to get to know as as much as possible about these families so that we know how to meet the needs. And treating everybody as individual families and individuals even within those family uh, units that come through the door, we make sure that we're we're paying very special attention to each person. Now, Amanda, when you're speaking about individuality and personhood uh, and as such, it brings to my mind the practice of cultural humility, which is something that is steeped in Lighthouse's programming. Is it something that resonates with you and your organization, this practice or this ideology of culturally humble services? I think so. Absolutely. I mean, we wouldn't be able to meet the families where they are if it wasn't something that was intentional that we thought about, you know, and we even make sure that staff receive some training and some information to be able to meet those families where they are in terms of cultural humility. Like, we all look at ourselves, right? We have to understand that there are, we have to suspend our own judgments. I know our social worker said that once when she was talking about cultural humility to our staff team. And I just loved that. I love that you suspend it. You suspend the judgment when you are getting personal with the family. I couldn't agree more that the foundational principle of cultural humility is looking at ourselves, our biases, self-critiquing mm-hmm. and becoming self-aware of our perceptions, whether they're conscious yeah. or unconscious. Yeah, absolutely. And it's inspiring to hear an organization that brings that learning and applicability of a, of a kind of a scope of practice to all its staff so that everybody's on mm-hmm. the same page, so that it's a mission and vision within the organization and how they they, they provide services. Well done. Well done. Absolutely. Thank you. Do you have any recounts or stories you'd like to share with us that can speak to 
some aspects of diversity, your programming, culture, humility, and, and what have you. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I guess the, the, the first thing I'll start with, I would love for all of us that, you know, when we think about diversity and especially in terms of complex care with children in pediatric hospice palliative care, when we think about diversity, um, for me, this is, this is a personal thought that I'd like to share with everybody. I love when we think about diversity in the world of pediatrics and care, that we think of children with complex care. So it is a very specific group of kids that live with life-limiting illness and who experience complex care and their family. Children that have that one thing in common, though, within that group, despite their illness, is that they offer us this incredible gift as care providers, this gift of dependence. Their very existence, you know, beckons we be the best of ourselves because we are called and compelled to care for them and make them happy and comfortable. It doesn't even matter what our faults are as individuals or, or, or where we've come from or what we do. You know, when we're with that child, when we're with them, we get to be our best selves. You know, we get to give. And, um, you know, being around a child with life-limiting illness with complex care, you know, gives us this opportunity to express our best selves. You know, sometimes when I think of gratitude and, and purpose, I think of it almost like, you know, there's a big theater and on the stage is a reminder of all the wonderful parts of life and all the seats in the theater, each of them represent a people. You know, it can be a group of people. And there's a seat in that theater for children with complex care. You know, they, they're in the room and so are their families and their caregivers. So, you know, there's, there's this incredible gift of dependence that taking care of those kids offers us. And um, when we do talk about diversity, they are a group that we do need to be, need to be mindful of. I should have asked you this before, Amanda. When you talk, when you speak of complex care, what does that mean? Mm. Well, these are children. So again, they're living with life-limiting illness. And when we say life-limiting illness, that doesn't necessarily speak to their abilities, though their abilities are affected. Um, but what it means is they have what are known as, as kind of childhood illnesses. It means that their life expectancy is a lot shorter. So, you know, depending on the illness, it can mean, you know, probably 20 years old or early 20s and younger. So these, these, are, these are children who are going to die as children. They're going to be children when they die. You know, a lot of the work that we do at Lighthouse for Grieving Children is after death. Actually, that's all mm -hmm. our work really is this support of grieving and the state of bereavement after death. If you are in a situation where you know your child's going to die, they have a mm -hmm. life-limiting illness and they're going to die of that life-limiting illness. And something I wanted to revisit that you mentioned before, uh, you articulated quite so well, is this act of back at this experience of anticipating the death and all the grief that presents as such. What have you mm -hmm. seen in terms of that grief? Well, one of the things that I've noticed with talking with families and spending time with them is one of the things that they are grieving is the, the loss of what may have, may be, what may have been. So they're not just grieving the loss of their child in the moment right now, but they're also grieving the the idea, the ideas and the hopes and the dreams that they had for the or have for the child. So, you know, 
they're grieving that I won't get to see them go to school. I won't get to see them make friends. I won't get to see them go to a prom or get married or go to university or, you know, all the things that a parent looks forward to doing with their child. They are grieving those things while they're grieving for their child living with their illness. And and in the case of a child who is dying, they have all the grief of actually losing the the child in the moment as well. Now I've heard, Amanda, I've heard of some of the things you, you've done at uh, Emily's house in response to the anticipation of the death of a child and the family's, you know, thoughts of they'll never have a prom, they'll never do this, they'll never mm-hmm. do that, all things that we've come customary to experience or, or expect. What are some of the stories or experiences that you've done at Emily's house to respond to that? Oh my goodness. Well, first thing, because I mentioned prom, we actually did a prom. We we hosted a prom so that the parents could bring their child to a prom and have that experience and their child be in the room with, with other kids. And, you know, it had a DJ and the, the, the common area was decorated like a prom and it had big balloons and, um, so that's that's one thing that comes to mind. And, you know, everybody dressed up and the children dressed up and their parents dressed up and they had dances together. Another thing that comes to mind is Halloween. So, you know, like, will my child ever experience trick-or-treating? So what we did was we had our youth advisory council. So these are our volunteers who are between 7 and 17 years old. They had They had bags of candy and they went into the room and close the door. And then we had volunteers and family members take the kids around the house to knock on the doors to trick or treat. And then our youth volunteers, you know, handed out candy to the kids in the house. And we did, you know, it was part of a Halloween party that we were having also. So there was lots of Halloween activities and decorations and snacks and food to eat and music. So those are some of the in-house events that we hold so that we can, can give up the families, the parents, um, an opportunity to experience those special moments with their kids. Um, Birthday parties, too. We we do birthday parties. And just all of those, like, ceremonial, traditional type events, you know, we we offer those as as experiences for our families. Thanks, Amanda. Again, some things percolate to my mind is, uh, is the grief the parents might be feeling while these activities and these these events or these are happening yeah. internally. What have you seen with oh, staff, you know, and what I, have you to support that that experience of grief? Yeah, you know, I we notice the body language, you know, and we notice the facial expressions while some of these while some of these events are happening. And and I've seen it a few times where you know the parents are having a really nice time in the room, and they love that their children are are playing with other children at a Halloween party, you know, and or getting that experience of trick or treat. But, you know, it, it, it's interesting you mentioned that because every now and then for some families, I've seen this like sadness brush over them for a moment. And often I've wondered, does the sadness come because this will be the only Halloween event? You know, this will be the only prom. This will be the only birthday. You know, it's almost like you can see the moments come over them where they they feel that 
you know, and I, it must be such mixed emotions, you know, gratitude that it's happening, but also this awareness that this is the only way it's going to happen. So I've got this one story that I would love to share with you, and it, it's an experience that I had with a, with a grieving child. And this was close to the time that Emily's house just opened. You know, we had had, as a staff team, we hadn't had too many experiences yet with with the death of a child on on site. But it must have been within our first year or so that that this happened. So there was a there was a boy who was dying from a life limiting illness in the home, and he had moved in with his sister and his parents, and. This young boy, this child, he had just died, and his family were grieving and mourning with the body still in the room. And it was a very slow departure from from Emily's house. So they were taking their time, and they had family members come in, and we put out food, of course, hospice food. We put out food for them and snacks, and, you know, it was just a very communal time, and their child was still in the bed. And people were coming in and out of the room. It was very, very home-like. And so there was a sibling, a girl, the sister, um, who had moved in to Emily's house. And so, of course, over weeks and weeks and weeks, we became familiar with the family and, of course, supported the sister in that time as well with her anticipatory grief and also just offering her some normalcy also. So very much a lot of our rec programming, the sister the sister was a part of. And so I got to know this little girl and she invited me to come into the room to visit with her brother for a little while. And of course, I, I, I went in there with her and, and he's in the bed still. And he had a blanket over him just up to, up to his, like, up to about his waist. And um, she insisted we both get into the bed with him. So each of us were on either side of of her brother. So she was on the right side and I was on the left side. And we were laying in the bed together with her brother in between us. And And there was just this moment of silence where she just wanted to be there, but she wanted somebody to be with her. And she would glance at me. And whenever she did, I would smile back at her. I, would, I didn't say a word, but I would smile back at her. And, you know, it was almost like she kept glancing to make sure everything was okay. Like, am I going to stay there with her? And so my smile back was, was kind of to let her know without words that I'm right here with you. I'm not leaving. I'm going to stay as long as you want me to stay with you. And so, so she would glance at me and I would smile back. And we didn't speak for, for a, what seemed a really long time there. And then she took his hand and she looked at me. And so I took his other hand. I just kind of followed suit. I, it's just there was something in her body language and in her expression where I just knew what to do. So she took his hand and I took the other hand. And we were just both holding, we were each holding a hand. And for me, in my mind, you know, I had noticed, like I was noticing some physical changes because I had not been in that situation before. This was the first time that I had been that close to to a child who, who was deceased. And that, so I was noticing things like the color of his skin, and I'd noticed like his, the color of his nails had changed, you know, when I was just caressing his hands also. And we, we spent some time like that. And when we were each holding the hand, eventually she looked up at me and she said, 
he was my best friend. And I remember I replied, sorry, <laughs> I, I replied, he's still your best friend. And she smiled at me. And it's almost like she was relieved to hear it. Because we were in that present moment. And I just felt it was the right thing to say. You know, so, and we, we had that moment. And, and we stayed there for a while. And then she got up off the bed to leave. And she looked at me. And, and you know, I just kind of turned, you know. So she, she kind of jumped off the bed and went around the bed. And then to, to the side I was on. And, and, you know, I just turned and watching her. And then she's like, are you coming? <laughs> I was like, yeah, okay, let's go. Let's go. Yep, I'm I'm right behind you. So it was just like, I just love that moment at the end. She's like, well, are you coming? Like, how long are you going to stay there? You know, she just, um, so that was a great, that was a great moment too. So I was just like, yeah, yeah, I'm coming. Let's go. You know, and, you know, and I, I, I wondered later, you know, I had a, I had a quiet moment after that, a little while later. Um, you know, she and I went and did a couple other things in the house, but then I had a, a moment later on. And, you know, I wondered later, like, kind of, I don't know, I don't know where, you know, these thoughts just come in. And I, and I said to myself, how many other children get that experience when their siblings die, you know, because that's an important part of the grief process. And I wondered how many people, how many siblings get that when their siblings die. And, and in that moment, I just remembered, like, how special hospice is, you know, like, giving children that opportunity to grieve for their siblings who, who, who lived with complex care, who lived with life-limiting illness. It was the norm for that sibling, too, right? So, so I ask myself those questions sometimes, and, and that really, I think, motivates me and the rest of the staff at Philip Z Center and Emily's house to really, really reach out and make sure that people know, that families know, you can come here and you can have that experience and, and you can allow your, you know, your other, your other child to grieve too, you know, on site at Emily's house. So it is about the parents' grief, of course it is, but we, you know, we mustn't forget about the siblings that are in the room and that are around also. And, and that's really, I think that, that was a very impactful moment. And especially because we had not experienced a lot of deaths at Emily's house at the time that it happened, because we were fairly new. We had, we had pretty much just opened. And, and that, like, obviously, I still remember it so well, that that moment really did, it really, it shined a light on grief and, and how important it is that we involve siblings in that grieving process you know so yeah that, that, that's just a that's a really special moment that I I thought I'd share with all of you <laughs> that is truly special Amanda that's an amazing amazing story there's there's so much there in terms of how we navigate and support and process grief and what we literally uh, you know permission children to do I mean you know, for myself, even growing up in in my communities and and my you know community culture and what have you, children are often shielded from death, shielded from funerals, shielded from even opportunities to grieve in their own innate way. And if I can yeah. just reflect on what you just shared with us, to me, that's that's a, a way of allowing a child, in this case, a sibling, to to process their grief, to be with their with their sibling to to actually look at an adult and almost gain permissioning or support and safety within how they want to you know 
grief. Yeah. And that's, 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 uh, that's truly special. Honestly, I think now I'm going to, I'm going to just spin this another way. That isn't necessarily, and I I hope I say this humbly common, not necessarily the, the experience of a grieving in a hospice and and let alone a, a pediatric hospice, but facilitating opportunities for children to grieve in their own way. I mean, at Lighthouse, we're very fortunate in a sense, our peer support model allows the child, as you said, person-centered, allows or, you know, creates an opportunity more appropriately for a child to process and navigate their grief, right, in a self-directed way within, mm-hmm. the, within a, you know, the oversight of the staff. Yeah. In terms of our, our communities and our societies and the diversity within, is that something that you think is, and at least this is just my opinion, is that something do you think that is, uh, one, common, and two, can it be shared, taught, or fostered? I think it can, and I think it can be taught in the stories we share with each other. You know, you're right. It's not a common experience. You've got that right, but I think it can be. So, I mean, with respect to, if we focus in on, uh, specifically on multiculturalism, which is a lot of my work uh, at Lighthouse for Grieving Children and the outreach and engagement of the communities uh, as such, mm-hmm. Given you're in downtown Toronto and the depth and breadth of multiculturalism is is incredible. Last I heard it was 192 dialects spoken in 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 the region. So what yeah. is your what is your experience? What's your and especially in the services you provide and across the spectrum of services you provide, what's your thoughts on that? What is your experience in it? Yeah, well, you know, in terms of whole person care, you know, each culture Death is associated with maybe a set of rituals or, or customs, possibly, you know, and those affect the grieving process, of course. So, you know, rituals in themselves offer people a way to process and express grief often. And, you know, it, they also provide us as care providers, you know, us being part of a community. Um, it gives us, it informs us as well on how to it gives us information how we can support the bereaved also. The more we can understand what their needs are, then of course we can do our best to meet them. So, and we've seen all kinds of families come through uh, Emily's house or even in our community program and require us to meet them where where they are. So we have to have this particular approach where it's, like we have to get as much information as possible and then see how and where we can meet the needs, especially when it comes to their expression of grief. And things are going to be new for us because it's not necessarily something that we're familiar with because we're different, you know. So there might be rituals that are performed after death or right before death that we have to open a space for as care providers. We, we have to make sure there's a space open to allow these different rituals and traditions to take place because it's part of that family's grief journey and death journey. What do you mean by space, Amanda? Almost like it is. And I don't know if it's an an allowance for it to happen, but it's um, an invitation. I think that's a better way to say it. Opening a space says, I am inviting you to do what you need to do, and I'm here to travel beside you while you do it. Interesting. When you talk about travel beside you when you're doing it or need to do it, it reminds me of what how you companioned that child that was sitting with her brother. Mm-hmm. Um, and lying with her brother when when he died at uh, Emily's house, there is those yes. those alignment pieces uh, in terms of I feel programming 
and then how is it you know is extrapolated to you know bedside companioning and the grieving process it is yeah it's interesting too because like what does that look like it doesn't opening a space doesn't look the same right it depends on the moment that you're in like the space looks different you know even for myself you know i had to open a space where i knew that i had to be ready to receive you know i was i was i was the recipient of an of an experience in that moment as well so the space is space is an interesting thing uh, it's it's, an, it's neat that you brought it up again like hey the space you know because i think that the space itself it's it, it includes a lot <laughs> it includes a lot so it means a lot so looking ahead amanda and looking ahead after 15 years of being in the, in the field that, that you and I are in. And what were your hopes for accessibility within the diversity of, of especially Southern Ontario, accessibility to services such as Philip Z Center and Emily's House, and as it relates to children's grief? Well, I think the first step to accessibility is, is the outreach part, right? Like it's people knowing that there is something there that is accessible. And then to be accessible, I think there's responsibility on the staff team so that you know, if, if we've done the outreach and we're making our programs accessible and people know about them, that when those families arrive, that we are grief and cultural sensitive. Um, and that means education and that means practice. You know, And, and when I talk about education, it means like what are some of the emotions and behaviors that we need to consider when it comes to grief responses in a person's culture? You know, what are bereaved families' beliefs around death? You know, are gifts and flowers and other off- uh, offerings even acceptable or expected? Yeah. You know, like all these things that are part of, you know, hospice palliative care, how we deliver support, you know, like what types of things, you know, whether it's verbal or written, condolence-wise, can we express in in, uh, a person's language? Being mindful about timing, is it okay to do certain things at certain times? So so there is that piece that I talked about before of getting to know the family, but then there's an even, you know, there's the broader piece of making sure that staff and volunteers, that, that everybody has some baseline training and experience and knowledge about grief. So it's it's multi um, it's multitasked, I would say. So this story is transcribed from a memorial letter and it was read out loud by a parent whose child had died two years previously. So this was actually written in nineteen ninety five. And this is this is what it said. I'm the child who cannot talk. You often pity me. I see it in your eyes. You wonder how much I'm aware of. I see that as well. I'm aware of much, whether you are happy or sad or fearful, patient or impatient, full of love and desire, or if you are just doing your duty by me. I marvel at your frustration knowing mine to be far greater, for I cannot express myself or my needs as you do. You cannot conceive my isolation, so complete it is at times. 
I do not gift you with clever conversation or cute remarks to be laughed at over and repeated. I do not give you answers to your everyday questions, responses over my well-being, or share my needs or comments about the world around me. I do not give you rewards as defined by the world standards or great strides in development that you can credit yourself. I do not give you understanding as you know it. What I give you is so much more valuable. I give you instead opportunities. Opportunities to discover the depth of your character, not mine, the depth of your love, your commitment, your patience, your abilities, the opportunity to explore your spirit more deeply than you imagined possible. I drive you further than you would ever go on your own, working harder, seeking answers to your questions with no answers. I'm the child who cannot talk. I'm the child who cannot walk. The world seems to pass me by. You see the longing in my eyes to get out of this chair, to run and play with other children. There is much you take for granted. I want the toys on the shelf. I need to go to the bathroom. Oh, I've dropped my fork again. I depend on you in so many ways. My gift to you is to make you more aware of your great fortune, your healthy back and legs, your ability to do for yourself. Sometimes people appear not to notice me. I always notice them. I feel not so much envy as desire, desire to stand upright, to put one foot in front of the other, to be independent. I give you awareness. I'm the child who cannot walk. I'm the child who is mentally impaired. I don't learn easily if you judge me by the world's measuring stick. What I do know is infinite joy in simple things. I'm not burdened as you are with the strifes and conflicts of a more complicated life. My gift to you is to grant you the freedom to enjoy things as a child, to teach you how much your arms around me mean, to give you love. I give you the gift of simplicity. I'm the child who is mentally impaired. And finally, I'm the disabled child. I'm your teacher. If you allow me, I will teach you what is really important in life. I will give you and teach you unconditional love. I gift you with my innocent trust, my dependency upon you. I teach you about how precious this life is and about not taking things for granted. I teach you about forgetting your own needs and desires and dreams. I teach you giving. Most of all, I teach you hope and faith. I am the disabled child. Beautifully said, Amanda. I mean, it's so rich. Yeah. And, you know, when we talk. Wonderful. I mean, it almost, it almost cause tears <laughs> and it such does. emotion within me right and you know it speaks to a measure of diversity that is often not thought of in terms of diversity equity inclusivity which is disability accessibility you know and and all and, and mental health and all these other aspects that have their own experiences of loss and grief that are not necessarily mm-hmm. death related but can be in alignment with experiences of grief as a result from death. Well, that's it exactly, right? I mean, it is. It's it's let's let's look at all let's look at all the people. Let's look at everybody that this affects, right? And this is a group that we don't often look at, but in our world, at my work, we see these kids all the time, but not everybody gets to. So not everybody gets to learn from them. And you know, Amanda, when we talk about children's grief, I think too often we focus, we, we unintentionally exclude uh, individuals with, you know, complex needs 
due either to lack of programming, understanding, knowledge, uh, training, because those children, I find, at least in, in my experience, are not always in grief support programs, right? Mm -hmm. They don't, either they're, they're, they don't have the accessibility or knowledge or they don't feel welcome, they don't feel safe, right, in, in such programming. And if you look at even marketing materials, rarely do you see a child with complex needs in those marketing materials when it comes to grief support, right? Nice. I think that's an aspect of diversity that we need to start focusing on a, a great deal more. You're absolutely right, and, and it does, and it's, and it's those outreach efforts. Right. It's it's that's the piece. That's when you you make that's your opportunity to bring awareness is in those outreach pieces. And, you know, the, you know we, we know like images, they make an impact on on what we remember as far as, you know, the, you know, when we get an outreach material, like when we get a card, when we get a brochure, when we get a link to a page, you know, like the, we um, images make an impact. So that's a really good point, too. Thank you, Amanda. I can't thank you enough for the story you shared, for that which you read to us, your knowledge, your experience, your wisdom. It's just, uh, it's its really quite a privilege to, to have you with us and to have uh, that experience from you and all that you shared. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you so much, Rami, for, for opening a space for me to be able to, <laughs> to be able to bring awareness to this and to to talk about it and to, to share. So I really appreciate it too. And thank you. Thank you for what you do. Thank you for the hard work that you do and the incredible, the incredible work you do when it comes to, uh, you know, grief and um, especially within, within this group of, you know, our, our grieving brothers and sisters. Wonderful, wonderful stuff, Amanda. For more information on Amanda's organization, please visit www.philipaziscenter.ca. That's Philip with one L. For more information about Lighthouse, please visit us on our website, www.grievingchildrenlighthouse.org, or check out our Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn pages. Thank you for joining us. My name is Rami Shami, and this has been the Lighthouse Beacon Podcast. Stay safe, everyone.